Amen. As you're getting situated, if you'll please get out a copy of God's Word and open to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, as we continue our uh, study of the book of Romans. If you don't have a, your own personal copy, we should have one of these that looks similar to this one right in the pew in front of you. And that is put there for a purpose. Uh, we want you to open that Bible to page 1001 because we want you to understand that we are the people of God under the authority of God. And you need to see that what we're preaching and saying is not our own, but it comes from the Lord. I've said this a lot of times here. If a man is going to speak on God's behalf, he must first hear what God has to say for himself. And so Romans chapter 6 is where we'll be. And this will be the Lord speaking for himself about what is his expectations for believers is where we're going to be going today. Yesterday we celebrated God bringing together Vince Post and Ashley. Vince was a product of our bus ministry here at church. He then spent the next 10 to 15 years serving in the church and doing kids ministry. And it was a very joyful send-off last Sunday as we prayed over him. And yesterday he married his bride Ashley. It was a beautiful wedding at a beautiful church, a time of great joy. And yesterday was not the beginning of their story. It was actually just a very historical moment in their story. See, Vince and Ashley, they met, then they dated. They even came to Sunday school where I gave them a 10-minute lecture on Christian dating. And then they got engaged, and they, they were a period of time. Remember Vince walking around here every Sunday? 57 days, 50 days, 43 days, 36 days. Like, I know, Vince, it's coming, brother. And so they were engaged, and then when they got to the wedding, when they got to that moment, their story had reached a very high point where both of them are going to say what? They're going to say, I do. And when they say, I do, their status changes in a minute. They go from being a single person to being a married person. They go from being uh, an individual to being two fleshes made into one. There's a status change. They're now husband and wife. They are changed from the, the young adult group to the married and, and, and growing old group in church life, all right? There's a status change. There's also a significance about this status. Think about how significant it is to be called husband and wife. The two become one, and they enter this marriage union where now their passions, purposes, priorities are all melded together, ultimately for the purpose of glorifying God. Vince's weaknesses are fulfilled by Ashley's, and Ashley's weaknesses are filled by Vince's, and together they honor the Genesis command to, to tend the earth and serve God faithfully. And that's finally, not only do they have a story, a status, a significance about them, but they do have a service. When you become husband and wife, you sign up to serve one another. I enjoyed what the pastor said yesterday. He had three L words. I'm going to steal the rest of my pastoral ministry. Marriage is about loving, being loyal, and long-suffering together. So I'm not just taking you as my bride. I'm not just taking you as my husband. I'm taking you in order to love you, to be loyal to you, and to long-suffer with you. This same thing happens in Christianity. If people say that your faith is unrealistic and that this kind of mystical things don't happen, I just showed you that every time a lost person gets married, they're doing the same exercise that we do when it comes to Christianity. Listen, there was a story that preceded our conversion. The story was that God sent his son to live on earth, to live a life you could never live, to love people like we could never love, to forgive in a capacity we've never seen forgiveness. He was the God-man. He lived perfectly and then in the end, he gave his life. He said, I do not come to be served, but to serve, to give my life as a ransom, to pay the price for all sin. And so he was crucified, and he died, and he was buried in a tomb, and then he was raised to life three days later. And that's a story. And ultimately, that story collides with your story. 
just like a girl meets a boy. And when those stories collide, you have a choice. Either you can believe and receive it, or you can deny it and walk away. But when you believe it and you receive it, there's a status change. Now this story of what Jesus is and what he did changes you from being a lost person to being a found person. From being a person of darkness to being a person of light. From being a rebel to being a saint. To being an outcast to being welcomed into the family of God. And so you have a story that changes your status. And think of how significant this is. You become one with Jesus. Like, his life and his accomplishments are put together with your life. And together you're in a union. Just like we have marriage unions. We are in a spiritual union where Jesus' life is our life. His death is our death. But we've got to be careful not just to end with a story and a status and significance. Paul says in Romans 6 that there comes a service along with this new relationship you have. That, that Christianity is not just about justification. It's not just about being saved. It's not just about being right with God. It's also about serving God. In the same way a husband takes a bride and a bride takes a husband to love and to be loyal and to long suffer with, folks, when you took Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you took him to, to love him the rest of your life and for all of eternity. Amen? You took him to be loyal to him the rest of your life and all of eternity. And you took him understanding, Jesus, if I have to suffer for your name, so be it. See, we're not so crazy in Christianity. What we do with faith is what they do with marriage. They do it with citizenship. They do it with the radicalization of American sports. If you're a Chiefs fan, you're part of the Chiefs kingdom. And if they win a Super Bowl, guess what? I've won a Super Bowl. Folks, I've never won a Super Bowl, but I guarantee you I would say I've won a Super Bowl because I'm part of a union of American football that's completely pagan, but it, uh, American football, and you see it. So what I want to say when we study Romans 6 and this idea of a union is we're not crazy to say that what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago is still significant in our lives today. And that's what the world wants you to think, is how can a man dying 2,000 years ago actually change your status? How can it actually be significant? And why in the world would you serve him? Well, for all the same reasons that a husband serves a wife, a fan follows a football team, or a citizen celebrates the Constitution, or Olympic victories, or military victories, it's because there's a togetherness there. We've been studying this last week. I started the argument in Romans 6, 1 through 14. I could only get through verse 5, and uh, so today we pick up verse 6. If I do my job well today, I'm going to continue to show you that Jesus' historical story has tremendous significance for the believer's status and service. Yes, you see all those S words because it helps me memorize my sermon. Jesus' historical story has tremendous significance for the believer's status and service. And we're going to look at that today. Before we get into it, let's just set the scene once again. Romans 1 through 4 is all about how God saved us in Jesus. Really, Romans 1 through 3 is all about how we're unworthy of being saved. Then at the end of 3, we get to that most powerful paragraph in the whole Bible that through Jesus you are justified by faith in his blood, that he's the mercy seat, and that God is just and the justifier because of what he has done in Jesus. And then chapter 4, he uses Abraham to show us how justification has been a consistent theme throughout the Bible. That Abraham was saved by faith alone the same way that you can be saved by faith alone. So we went from saving faith in Romans 3 and 4. Then Romans 5, Pastor Calvin and I looked at the hope we have in eternity. That through Jesus, we have overcome sin. We've overcome death. We've overcome, we have grace and peace and hope. 
Well, Paul gets accused of looking too far ahead and skipping over a chunk of the Christian faith. You're lost, you get saved, and then all of a sudden we're talking about eternity. And the, and the, and the, Jew, the Romans say, or he's expecting the Romans to accuse him of what? Paul, you're not worried about how we live for God. All you're worried about is saving us and getting us to heaven. Really, if we could be honest, Paul, you're an antinomianist. You're against the law. Really, your gospel you're preaching is all about grace and nothing about righteousness and, and serving God. And really what you're doing is you're saying this. Just go ahead and sin. Because the deeper you sin, the deeper you get to experience God's grace. It'd be like telling a child, go ahead and disappoint your family for 30 years, because then you get to see a side of them you never will without it. That'd be horrible advice, amen? And so Paul has to correct that in Romans 6. And last week we saw that. It starts off with the accusations. If you have your Bibles open in Romans 6.1, then how, what, should we continue to live in sin? That's the accusation, Paul. If 5.20 says, as sin multiplies, so does grace, Paul, are you saying that I should continue in sin? Paul gives a two-word answer. Absolutely not. No, we shouldn't continue in sin. And then he gave us a rhetorical answer. How can one who has died with sin continue to live in it? How can one who has been redeemed by Jesus and pulled out of slavery and pulled out of the reign of sin and placed into the reign of grace, how can one who no longer has sin as his landlord but his neighbor, why in the world would you go put yourself back under the authority of sin? And then Paul has to answer the question, well, then how did we get released from sin? Because what we see is a reverse argument. We are free from sin because we're with Jesus. We're with Jesus because we claim his death and resurrection. And we can claim that resurrection because it actually happened. Now, in Western culture, we preach it upside down. We preach what? Jesus died and rose again. So you need to accept that death and his resurrection. So you can be joined with Jesus. So that you can die to sin and live for who? God. And that's what Paul's arguing. The reason you don't live in sin, folks, is because God got you out of sin. And your gratitude for what he has done in your life is so much greater than your sinful gratification you used to have. If you've experienced the depths of God's grace, you'll never want to go back to sin and its grips again. And then he talked about the union, the fact that his death is our death, his resurrection is our resurrection. And we looked at that last week. So on the top of your bulletin, I've summarized the whole argument of Romans 6, 1 through 14. And just for your benefit and my benefit, I've already preached the first four of the six. So uh, we're, we're making good progress. But last week we looked at the first four. Why don't Christians continue to live in sin? Because they have a new status. They're no longer under sin's authority. And why do they have a new status? Because they're in a spiritual union with Jesus by faith. And why is that union so important? Let's turn to verse 6 and let's see why that union is so important. Why is being joined to Jesus so important in your life and in my life? Romans 6 this morning. For we know, just understand that this is not a new teaching of Paul. We have to understand, understand this is elementary. Paul said last week, do you not know? So these verses are telling us, no, this is the elementary truths of the faith. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, that would be Jesus, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. So now you're starting to see the significance of your status or union with Jesus. When you are together with Jesus, then you are saying that the old you the you that was dominated by sin and death, your old self, your life before Jesus 
What did you do with it? It was what, church? It was crucified. If you were in Sunday school today, this is very similar to the lesson you had. Jesus tells the 12 apostles what? If you want to follow me, if you want to decide to follow me, you must deny yourself and what? Pick up your cross. You must die to yourself and then you can what? Follow. Listen, all of us in this room who are believers have a pre-Jesus life. All of us do. That's what's so amazing about the good news is that none of us are born into the kingdom of God. None of us are born righteous. We all have a pre-Jesus life. We call that the life under Adam. Adam was our old leader. He invited in sin and death. And we grew up with Adam being our spiritual leader. Where we were encouraged to gratify ourselves to the demise of God's glory. We were encouraged to, to worship ourselves rather than worship God. But then someone got a hold of you one day and they shared that good news with you. The good news that if you want to know God and you want to be received by God, you must what? Die to your old self. You must live for God. And it's not that you must compartmentalize your life. Your old self was crucified with Jesus. No one escapes crucifixion. No one escapes the death penalty. Your old life is D-E-A-D. It is what? It is dead. You don't go to a funeral and take the dead back home with you. The dead are left dead. If you try to take the dead home with you, you would socially look awkward. And for some of us Christians in here, the reason your life looks awkward in the eyes of Jesus is because you're still dragging the dead old life with you. And it's really awkward that he gave his life to redeem you, and you're dragging that corpse around thinking it's still going to gratify you. How can Christians live in sin? By dragging something Jesus killed. It doesn't make sense. You've been crucified with Jesus. The old you, the old Jacob, the old Calvin, the old Jennifer, the old Cynthia, they're dead. That was part of the arrangement. If you want my blood to redeem you, you want to be a child of God, you must die to yourself. You must be born again in the Spirit. We have died with Jesus. Just like a citizen wins the gold medal with their country, or just the way a fan wins a game with theirs, we have claimed the death of Jesus. We have claimed his crucifixion. Now why is that important? Because look what it says. We have been crucified with him. Now circle this in your Bible. These words are the most important. So that, so that they're going to tell you the purpose of why you were crucified. Why did God join you with Jesus? Why did his story have to be your story? So that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Really, we could say this, God wanted to, to strip sin of all of its power and control and dominion over you. He wanted to get rid of it. I said this last week's illustration. God wants to move you out of the rental house called sin and into your eternal dwelling called grace. Sin is no longer your landlord. The reason he crucified you was so that that old man would die and you could have a new master called grace. We need to understand that sin has been abolished. Sin's control over you has been wiped out. Now the asterisk here that I had last week is still an asterisk. While you die with Jesus, the power of sin is gone, the presence of sin is still there. The power is gone, but the presence is still there. That's why I call him your neighbor. He's still that neighbor always trying to get you back into the life you used to have. Or maybe you could say it like this. The penalty of sin has been paid, but the possibility to sin is still there. We don't believe in sinless perfection. 
So folks, when we say that sin has been stripped, or its power has been stripped, what we mean is this, is that while sin is still present, and sin is still possible, sin must persuade you back, rather than automatically have control over you. As a believer, understand your sin is a choice, rather than a consequence of your birth. Prior to Jesus, we were born into sin. That's why you'll hear pastors say all the time, lost people are going to act what? Lost. It's our job to take the gospel, because the only way they're not going to act lost is if they're found in the gospel of Jesus. Listen, we're all born into sin. That's a consequence of Adam. But when you become a believer, you have died to that self, and sin has been stripped of all its power. And when you do sin after your conversion, it is a choice rather than a consequence. Do you see the significance of this death? Sin loses its power over you. That's an amazing thing today. Some of you are tired of living in sin. You're tired of the hate you carry, the addiction you carry, the greed you carry, the pride you carry. You're tired. You know what sin does? It uses you for its advancement, and when you wear out, he spits you out and finds someone else to use. Sin is here to consume you for its own glory. And then we see the second thing that's also historically significant. Look what the Bible says. Not only have you been crucified so that the body might be, uh, so, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. Here's a second so that. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. I think he focuses the power away from sin and now he's to you. And he's saying what? You don't have to live as a sin to slave or slave to sin. The, the Israelites did not have to stay in Egypt forever. After 400 years, God delivered them out of slavery into his possession. The same way today, you don't have to live in sin all the days of your life. God can deliver you out of the arena of sin, and he can deliver you into his possession. Why is it significant that we are in a union with Jesus? Why is it significant that his crucifixion is my crucifixion? Because when I was crucified with Jesus, sin lost its power, and I was transferred to God's kingdom. I'm not a slave to sin. Sin is not my master. That's an amazing thing. John Stott has a paragraph that I could not summarize, so I'll read it. He says that there's two deaths you do. He says the first is our death to sin through our identification with Christ. The second is our death to self through our imitation of Christ. On the one hand, we've been crucified with Christ, but on the other hand, we have crucified our sinful nature with all of its desires. So that every day we can renew this attitude by taking up our cross and following Jesus to crucifixion. The first is a legal death getting you out of the penalty. The second is a moral death, getting the power of sin out of your life. The first one belongs 2,000 years ago. It's unique and it's unrepeatable. But the second one is preached every Sunday from our pulpits. The second one is made available to every human that wants to die to self and live in God. Romans 6 is telling you today, sin doesn't have to be your master. So we've seen that sin is stripped. We've seen that we are released from sin slavery. And now number eight, we're going to have another promise here of our union. Here's more significance of our union with Jesus. We have a status. I'm a believer. We have a spiritual union. I'm in Jesus. The significance of that status is this. Now, if we have died with Christ, we, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over Jesus. You go back to chapter 5, there was two enemies standing between you and God's plan for your life. Those two enemies were sin and death. 
Sin was stripped naked on the cross. He was conquered. He was ab- abolished. He was, he was annihilated on the cross. When you are crucified with Jesus, sin is no longer your master. And when you are raised with Jesus, death no longer has control over you. Every preacher worth their two cents says at every funeral, what? No one outruns Father Time. But for believers, we will overcome Father Time. Death is no longer an enemy of mine. Because if Jesus died and was raised alive, then I must also believe that when I die, I will also be raised to what? To life. That's what it says right here. I'm not, I'm not paraphrasing the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. It says what? It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also, that's you, believer, will live with him. And when you talk about living with him, that can be the power of his resurrection. We live with Jesus today. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that you may know the Father and the Son in whom he sent. Eternal life is now. We have the power of God in us. Calvin will sing the song, the same power that raised Jesus is the same power living in us. We have the power, but not only do we have the power of Jesus in us, we also have the promised path of resurrection with Jesus. We have a power and we have a path. And my path is not detoured because of death. Death is just a mere stop along the way until Jesus raises my eternal body. And the reason we have this confidence, folks, once again, all through Romans, is not because of our morality or our goodness, because we know, look at verse 9, our confidence is because, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. Jesus was not raised like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised... Some people even make the joke he was resuscitated because his resuscitation ultimately ended in him, what? Dying again. Resurrection is not, you don't get restored in order to die again. You get resurrected to live what? Forever. Jesus' resurrection was not like Lazarus. Jesus' was he was raised alive never to live again. And that's what we see here as the significance of what we're doing. Let me read Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Listen to what John says when he encounters Jesus. When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Jesus laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And then Jesus giving us a a helpful thing here. Listen to what he says. I was dead. But look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. See, Jesus doesn't deny his death, but at the same time, he's pretty open about the fact that he overcame it in resurrection. So what is, what's the big argument here? Paul, you are telling Christians to sin. You go sin, so grace abounds. No, I'm not. Absolutely not. We are not going to sin as believers. Why? Because we've died to sin. I don't live for sin anymore. Sin's not my master. Well, pastor, why is sin not your master? Because I'm together with Jesus. And Jesus is my master. His life is my life. His death is my death. His resurrection is my... What does that mean? It means that the old self of me before Jesus is way gone. It means a new power has shown up in my life. And a new path has been laid for my future. And the reason I'm confident is because of the historical truth of Jesus' life. And that's exactly where he goes next. Folks, we don't believe in just some make-believe story. This isn't the Easter bunny here. We believe in a real life that happened in history. There is a concrete son of God, fully God, fully man, that walked this earth. And then the last part of his argument here is what? That the significance of our faith is actually anchored to a real person. Look what it says in verse 10. 
For he died, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now this is normally where a North American pastor starts. He died and he lives. You need to die and you need to live. So accept Jesus. And now you belong to him and not sin. That's how we hear the gospel. All Paul's done is work backwards. You don't belong to sin. Because you belong to Jesus. Because you claimed what he did for you. And what did he do for you? He died a once and for all time death. And he lives a life only to God forever. I mean, listen to how just historically true that is. He died a death. He did it once and for all. So that he could live, and he could live specifically only to God. Listen, our faith is anchored to reality. To real history. To the God-man who came in the flesh and lived amongst us. To the God-man who walked on earth who died on a real cross and was buried in a real tomb and raised to a real life, never to die again. Jesus died for the penalty of sin, and he was raised for a life to God, once and for all time. There is no need for any more sacrifices or physical deaths for the penalty. Jesus' death was for all, for all time. You are not called to sacrifice yourself physically. You're not called to sacrifice anyone else or any animal. You are called to place your faith in the real history of Jesus Christ to claim the history that really exists when he died the death that you deserved and when you claim this reality it becomes your reality his historical life becomes historically significant for you I mean there's a lot of things in our life that work this way think of all the anchors of your life the minute Jennifer got pregnant I was now called a what father that's a status there's a significance to that. There's a service that comes along with that. Amen? There's actually a union. A father-son relationship or a father-daughter relationship. We have it in parenting. The minute I said I do, I became a husband. We went over that one. The minute that, the minute that they hooded me at my graduation, I became Dr. McMillan. There was a change to that. There's a responsibility. There's a service. There's a status. The minute you sign your name on the 6,000 piece of paper to buy a house, Carrie, it's way too much if you could talk to the title company. Way too many papers. And by the time you get to the end, you're just making a straight line. That's my signature. But the minute you sign that line, you are now a what? You're a homeowner. And there's a status there. And there's significance there. We're going to bring our kids home here. And we're going to grow old here. We're going to do laundry here and mow the yard here and do the dishes here. You know, there's a significance to it. There's a service to it. i got to take care of my house. So when I say this about Jesus' historical life as an anchor in the Christian faith, do not look at me cross-eyed saying I'm doing some mystical voodoo up here. This is stuff you do in every day of your life. The difference is this. It's God doing it for you. And it's you receiving all the benefits. But the transaction works very similar to the rest of our lives. See, there's two anchors in the Christian faith. The first one is the historical life of Jesus. That is unrepeatable, and we do not need to do it again. It is done once and for all, for all people, for all time. Then there's the second anchor, which is a personal anchor that you have to lay down, and that is your conversion by faith alone. That is repeatable. Every person you meet, you want to repeat this anchor, don't you? Drop your anchor in Jesus. Drop your anchor in his life. Accept the good news of Jesus. Accept the gospel. Repent of your sins. Become a child of God. I once was lost, but now I'm found. You, this is the repeatable one. This is what we implore everyone we ever meet to die with Jesus. One death, unrepeatable. That's his death. 
Everyone else's death is something we want to see every day of our lives. We want to see more and more people claim it. Amen? And then we end with his argument, or his, what we would call his, his reality of who we are. And now Paul is going to transition to some commands. So what Paul has done in verses 2 through 10 is he's built you up really nice. He has told you you're in Jesus. He's told you you don't belong to sin. He's told you you belong to God. He's told you that Jesus died for you, and that's really significant in your life. And right now, you're feeling really good. We would call that justification. All of this is done at your conversion. Boom, it's done. But then after justification is done, there's another word in our faith called sanctification. Okay, so justification, I put this on your note sheet because I really like these little taglines here. If you go down underneath point three, here's the transition. Here's the two we got to get right. So we're getting ready to shift gears. The last week and so far in this sermon, all I've talked about is your position in Jesus. Now I got to tell you how to progress into that position. Or maybe you like the D words. I've declared to you everything that God declares over your life by faith, but now we got to develop into what he has given us. Or maybe you like the A words. You can tell I've had to write a paper on this. Maybe you like the A words. A lot's been accomplished for you. Amen? But now it's time to apply it to your life. Or maybe you want to get back to these pieces. You've been pardoned in Jesus, but now it's your responsibility to pursue Christ's likeness. I have one more. It's my favorite. We need to become what we became at our conversion. We need to become what we became at our conversion. Justification Everything is given to you. Forgiven, righteousness, justification, child of God, adoption, forgiveness, eternal life, grace, peace. The list goes on and on and on. But out of that position that's granted to us, folks, God deserves us now to progress into that. He hands us a suit jacket that fits six sizes too large, and he says, grow into it. And that's what Ephesians says. Build one another up until we all grow up into the head, which is what? Jesus. We're pardoned, and now we need to pursue and that's where he's going here. But it's very important you understand this transition. That the commands of God is always rooted in the truth of who you are in God. We don't believe in legalism. We don't believe that you do the commands to get the position. No, we believe the position is granted by faith, and then we progress into it. Okay? If you get those backwards, you're in legalism, and if that's not the gospel of Jesus. So three ways I know he transitions. Verse 11, he tells you, don't miss the parallelism, folks. So you too consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus. You see what he says there? Hey, you know, I just told you Jesus died and he was raised to live. Don't miss the parallel. If you're union with him, you've done the same. You've died to sin and you're alive in God. And those three words are very important at the end, in Christ Jesus. It's the union with Jesus that gets us to this place. So therefore, notice in verse 12, here's another transition word. Therefore, and if Adam Woodrum was preaching, why is therefore therefore it's therefore because paul's telling you based on everything i just told you you get for free here comes the expectations therefore since you are this in jesus here comes what's expected of you and then this third reason i know that he transitions and this is just for our theological nerds in the audience is paul transitions from the indicative case into the imperative case indicative is used for statements and questions like i have brown hair imperative case is used for commands be quiet go home do your homework take the trash out and so in greek there's two different ways of showing that 
And so for those nerds out there, Paul lets you know that he has switched from commands or from our position to our progress. He's switching to from what we became at conversion to what we need to become. And now our first one, verse 12, here's what we need to become, church. If we are in Jesus and we have a union with Jesus and he's done all this good stuff for us, here comes the first command. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. You know what Paul is saying? Really fancy counseling this morning. Stop. Stop everything you used to live by. You are no longer the old self. You are a new creation. For the old things have passed and the new things have what? Come. You've got to stop the way you used to live. It's fancy Christian biblical counseling. I'll, I'll do it for $150 an hour. I'll tell you this when you first walk in. Stop. Stop living like you used to live. You no longer are that old person. Stop letting sin reign in your life. Stop allowing it to persuade you. Stop allowing it to have power. Yes, sin originates from you. Yes, the desire starts with you. But you need to then put it to death. You need to mortify it, like the Puritans would say. You need to, you need to kill sin. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. If you think you can allow sin to hang out with you throughout the week and still be a born-again believer, you have a different definition of Romans 6.12. It says right here, do not let it rain. You don't give it an inch. You don't let it persuade you one bit. There's no room for sinful gratification and a grateful, uh, grateful life for God. I mean, could you imagine if I told Jennifer after I said, I'll love you, I'll be loyal to you, and I will long suffer with you. But just so you know, Tuesdays from 12 to 4, Susie gets to come back. I never dated Susie, so this is hypothetical. There are names I could say that then would lead to Pastor Calvin having to do pastoral counseling for me. But Susie's not one. But could you imagine saying that? Could you imagine saying, you know what, I love you and I'm loyal to you and I'm going to long suffer with you. But just so you know, 2% of my life is compartmentalized and I have this other, this other person. And it's not going to hurt you. It's just, you need to, I'm going to be honest with you, I still get that too. That's not what the Bible says. You have been in a position of Christ, and now you need to progress to Christ's likeness. And then he drills down deeper. He goes from your body to your parts. Look what he says in verse 13. Here's another command. Do not offer any parts of it, that's your mortal body, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. We've went from your whole mortal body, probably your faculties, your capacities, your, 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 your actual body. We've went from the whole thing, and now he's saying any part your eyes, your mouth of gossip, your swift feet to anger. None of you. Oh, your imagination, guys. I'm not looking at anything anymore, but I'm glad I got a good imagination because I still remember all the videos and images I have looked at. Thank you, God. I can get my imagination. It can still be really good for me and still live for God. No, that's not how it works. All of your capacities, all of your abilities, all of your faculties that God has given you by your natural birth are now supposed to be used for who and who alone? God. He says here, do not use them as weapons of unrighteousness. Go to the next verse. But as those who are alive from the dead... So where does he take you back to? Where does he ground the command? In your position. He's not telling lost people not to do this. He's telling people who claim to be alive in Jesus and are dead to sin. You see the order here? Because you claim the death of Jesus, because you claim the resurrection, because you claim the crucifixion, because you claim the name of Jesus, because you claim to be alive to God and dead to sin, then offer yourselves to God. Every stinking part of you to God 
as weapons of righteousness. Folks, maybe you haven't thought about this recently. You live in a spiritual war. This creation is a spiritual war going on between good and bad, between God and evil powers that rebelled against him trying to destroy his creation. And you are born into the rebel side, into the dark side of Star Wars. You're born into the rebel side. But Jesus, and through your belief in his historical life, becomes significant. You are now part of God's side. You're now a Jedi. And Jedis don't fight other Jedis. And Jedis don't let stormtroopers live. They put him to death. Only Calvin understands what I'm saying. But one man does. It says don't let any of your parts serve unrighteousness. I know my wife's going to quote this to me in the next 72 hours. And she should. Because if we're going to claim the name of Jesus, and we're going to claim this wonderful position, justified and peace and hope and grace and all the stuff that's in our praise songs, then by golly, we should be able then to progress into those words and deny the sinful desires we carry over from our dead body. Listen, sin does not have power, but it has presence. Sin does not, you've paid the penalty, but I'm here to tell you folks, I'm here to tell you, it's still a problem and it'll still try to persuade you. You must put it to death. You can all understand the imagery of weapons. Weapons for righteousness or weapons for run. You understand what Paul's saying here is that you're advancing some kingdom. Everything you do is either advancing the kingdom of God or it's an obstacle to its advancement. Nothing is meaningless in this world. So that 12 to 4 slot that Susie gets to come back, that actually does have ramifications in the kingdom. Because guess what happens when we realize Susie came back? Now I've hurt my wife, I've hurt my children, I've hurt my church family, and I've completely disappointed my Heavenly Father. Yeah, if it doesn't get caught, I may think it's not hurting anyone, but folks, it is. I said this last week, every time you choose to put yourself back under the authority of sin, you are disappointing your Heavenly Father, and you are completely disrespecting what He did for you. And if it ever does come to the surface, there will be horizontal consequences that you can't even imagine. So take this advice. Don't let it rain in your life. Kill it. Bertha will tell you a good gardening trick. You want to hear a good gardening trick from Bertha? Weeds got to go so good things can grow. All right? You put that into your Christian life. The old things got to what, folks? So the good things can grow. As we end today, I... I, I want to go back to this wedding imagery. I, I enjoyed what Ashley's pastor said yesterday. They were swapping out the rings, and he was telling them, you know, these rings, they don't keep you married. Wedding rings don't keep you married. Unfortunately, nowadays, wedding rings aren't even respected by people in your life. They'll still want to be with you even if they see a ring. So the rings don't have that value. But he said that his prayer for Vince and Ashley was that their rings would be a symbolic, uh, a symbolic token in their life. That would remind them every day that they belong to someone else. That they live and they're loyal and they suffer with the person they pledge their life. And then he said this little phrase that rhymes that I like. He says, every time you hear the clinging of the ring, you hear the ring cling, you'll remember what you did at the altar. I really like that. He made a joke about Vince hearing it when he did dishes and we all laughed. And, but you know how often your ring does hit something or it makes that noise. And I started thinking in the last like 24 hours, how do I get something that rhymes for the Christian faith? Because that's what I like to do. And I would say this. Don't forget the symbolism of your baptism. Don't forget the symbolism of your baptism. 
When you're tempted to sin, when you're tempted to be the old you, when you're tempted to entertain those sinful gratifications you used to do, don't forget the symbolism of your baptism. You walked into judgment waters, you were crucified and died with Jesus, and you rose to a new life. Now, that was symbolic of what God did in your life. You have the power of resurrection. So when you have moments of weakness, when you think, maybe I'm not saved, or maybe I do need to go back to the old me, or maybe I would be happier, the symbolism of your baptism can be just as powerful as the cling of a ring. And that's really what Romans 6 is saying. We were purchased by someone, we're united with someone, and we're going to live for that someone. Amen?